0: There is an intriguing image in Chapter 2 of the new study, American Shtetl, The Making of Kiryas Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York, by Nomi Stolzenberg and David Myers. It is a photograph from 1936, and the authors take time to interpret the scene for us. They say, Satumare was by far the largest of the Unterland communities in which Joel Teitelbaum served as rabbi. For all its lack of homogeneity, the size of Satumare actually made it a good laboratory for Teitelbaum. He could experiment with his distinctive brand of religious politics, balancing tightened supervision over the community with a willingness to work with Gentile authorities. Indeed, while he discouraged interaction between his followers and less observant Jews, he was always willing to meet public officials and display loyalty to them in order to advance his community's interests. Perhaps the most striking visual evidence of this willingness was Rabbi Teitelbaum's famous encounter with Romanian King Carol II in November 1936, Karl was passing through Transylvania after a state visit in Czechoslovakia. His 12-wagon train stopped in Satumare, where he was received by local politicians and religious figures. A widely disseminated blurry photograph captures Tudelbaum in a large fur coat, bending forward to shake hands with the king. The event is well known and celebrated in Satmar lore, Reverential biographies of Teitelbaum spare no detail in recounting it. They report that he was asked by the organizers to stand in the row of dignitaries that included the head of the status quo community as well as representatives of the Greek Orthodox and Catholic churches. When the king approached, we hear, the two men's eyes locked and Teitelbaum uttered the Hebrew benediction upon seeing a Gentile head of state The king then proceeded past the two Christian clergymen and, according to a contemporaneous account, shook his hand warmly and for a prolonged time. The account continues that the honored guests and the assembled masses were astonished and looked on with bated breath at the shaking of hands of the king and the holy rabbi. They saw it as an expression of kingly grace on one hand and civic loyalty on the other. Words from the recent study, American Shtetl, The Making of Kiryas Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York. The author's outline of Rabbi Teitelbaum's mode of operation here will prepare us to understand what has taken place over the past 25 years in the community of Kiryas Joel in Orange County, New York. Before entering Kiryas Joel with Dr. Myers and Professor Stolzenberg, though, We take a moment to meet one of the preeminent historians of Jewish history, Joseph Chaim Yeroshami, who had an abiding interest in what has been called the Royal Alliance. That is, Jews' inclination to forge vertical alliances with ruling powers, or the highest authorities, as a serious survival strategy. As Lois Dubin puts it, on our way to Kiryas Joel, we pause to learn something about the remarkable scholar who was professor of Jewish history, culture, and society at Columbia University, where Dr. Myers was his student. According to Dubin, in an essay in Jewish history in 2014, Earl Shami taught his students that not only books, but also the lives of actual people matter. And moreover, that books, even those treating sacred texts, are always expressions of a complex human reality whose subtle and often poignant qualities must be revealed and savored. And as we begin the second part of our conversation with Dr. Myers and Professor Stolzenberg, we'll spend time with these two scholars who have the depth of knowledge and critical skills in the most expert way to tell the story of Curious Joel while also bringing the empathy of the great historian Joseph Yaroshami to the project. And that is what makes their study especially compelling. Nomi Stolzenberg holds the Nathan and Lily Chapelle Chair in Law at the University of Southern California Law School. And David Myers holds the Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Chair in Jewish History at the University of California, Los Angeles. The two have co-authored this important study titled American Shtetl, and it was issued in February by Princeton University Press. Dr. Myers is a native of Scranton, where he spent his senior year of high school at the University of Scranton before going on to study at Yale. He and Professor Stolzenberg returned to Scranton in March to present a program titled A Remarkable Tale of Law, Politics, and Religion, as part of the World Affairs Luncheon Seminars hosted by the Shammel Forum at the University of Scranton. We had a chance to speak with them after that seminar. They paid a visit to the WVIA studios to share the story of Curious Joel with us. David, you talked about how this is a different approach to history than you are used to doing. So at what point did you go to, (laughs) and did they let you in? How did they trust you?
1: Well, as I said, Erica, I was looking over my shoulder at Nomi's fascinating work, and I said, I have to get in on this. And I resolved that I would reach out to the community and ask, as a formal matter, if I could come and study the community. Because one does not simply show up on the streets of Curious Joel and begin to conduct research. You would be quickly identified and in all likelihood shunned for poking around and and in some sense exoticizing this community, which I and people in the community are very sensitive to. So I did reach out to the person who was sort of the most public-facing official, the school superintendent, a man by the name of Stephen Bernardo, who did not come from the community, but who often served as spokesman of the community. And I asked if I could come. This, I dare say, was in 2003. And we've just published our (laughs) book in 2022, which is to say it's almost two decades in the making. I came to the community after Dr. Bernardo sounded out the village board and the school board and various officials in in KJ, as we call it, Kiryas Joel, and I was given a green light. I came, I showed up, and I was really stunned, you know, from my first encounters. Why? Not because I found this community of Yiddish-speaking observant Jews in upstate New York, that I knew. What surprised me to the point of being stunned was when I was told that we let you in because we're really interested in someone holding up a picture to us as we reach our 25th year of existence and sort of letting us take a look at how we seem both to ourselves and to the outside world. And that was really mind-blowing, you know, to, to sort of give voice to that interest in wanting to know how the world outside looked at Satmar Hasidic Jews, at this community. It was just a kind of a total revelation and reminded me that sort of the gaze of observation was two-way. It wasn't just my observation of the community. It was also interested in who I was and what my interest in the community was. And I should say that over the course of my many visits to the community, I gained some very minor celebrity as an outsider who knew the history of the summer community as well as just about everyone or anyone, with the exception of sort of the great court historian of the Satmar community, a man by the name of Rabbi Shlomo Yankel geldman who wrote a 10-volume biography of Joel Teitelbaum and a one-volume history of Kiris Joel, and who welcomed me as a fellow scholar interested in the community. That was another sort of insight that I could never have imagined, that degree of receptivity and interest in me for my
0: interest in them. And you do observe don't you that the fact that they are interested in having an outsider someone from outside the community as well positioned as you are to look at them is an American
1: yeah. trait. I think it's a very de- you, know, you know that whole interest in sort of having a mirror held up. The language in which that was conveyed seemed very American to me. And sort of the language I hear when uh, when I hear about the need for self-reflection or when i talk to public officials and they talk about you know the need for transparency and accountability it sounds very american because it is and 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 it's important for people out there to understand that as separatist as the community is it is very much part of the american landscape as much as it would want to be disengaged it is very much part of the landscape and and that kind of accountability that that transparency that quest for a self-reflection, all belong to late 20th, early 21st century America and can't be severed from it.
2: Please, Nomi. Well, I was just going to add, because I think this is also an important but much less visible part of the project, an explanation of why I didn't go into the community and do the kinds of quasi-ethnographic research that that David did, which is such an important part of the book. I thought really long and hard about it. And one of the things that really gave me pause, and and both of us, is we were acutely aware that because of the very traditional gender norms in the community, first of all, if I had shown up with or without David, I mean, I don't know for sure because I didn't test it, but, you know, I speculated, I think reasonably, that the people in the community whom David met with, who were mostly male, would have been much less comfortable speaking with me if they would have talked to me at all. Conversely... David was going to have much, or frankly, either of us, even if I had been sort of given access to the community, you know, all of the official leaders of the community, both its religious leaders, the leaders of the village, are men. In every community, the public face of the community is by definition much more accessible to outside observers than the private domain, than the domain of intimate life, than the domain of the family, which is mostly, mostly where women reside. And so we knew that there's just this inherent gender bias to the kind of ethnographic observation we were undertaking. Now, in theory, there's a solution to that. If I could have cloned myself and had, you know, another Nomi Stolzenberg who lived on the East Coast rather than in Los Angeles and, you know, wasn't raising a family of three and had a full-time job, that other Naomi Stolzenberg, and all the better if maybe she had been, you know, trained as a, as a cultural anthropologist or sociologist, I think a, a woman could have done a long term, what sociologists and anthropologists would call participant observation kind of study. If you really become embedded in a community, well, then yes, you can have access to intimate life. You can speak to women. And so, but this was not in the cards for many, many reasons. And so we really thought, yeah, you know, we were highly aware of it. And at the end of the day, I think we realized we, we had to accept and recognize and be aware of that gender bias in our research. It certainly didn't stop us from, from discussing and talking about the nature of gender norms, the role of women in the community. We talk about the women who, in fact, have played quite significant leadership roles, despite the fact that sort of officially only men are leaders. Um, but we just kind of had to accept that. Now, I did do, I mean, I did do a fair bit of travel and talking and interviewing with important figures in the story of Curious Joel. But most of them, you know, they were journalists, they were people who'd grown up in the community who had left, they were lawyers, and they were parties to legal cases. So, so I did do that kind of work.
1: I do want to just add one interesting data point to the discussion of women in the community where there very much is a, a sort of doctrine or ethos of separate spheres. Women
0: sort of inhabit the domestic
1: sphere and men inhabit the outward public sphere and it's a very traditional gender framing and to many extents it's it's still operative in the community but one of the interesting exceptions to that is that upon the death of the founding rabbi rabbi joel teitelbaum there was no obvious heir apparent because he himself left behind no sons uh, who would naturally take over according to the dynastic leadership model of hasidic judaism so the position went to his nephew, to whom he was not super close, and with whom his wife had very tense relations. She was known as Alta Feige, Old Faiga, and she did not like her nephew-in-law, uh, Moshe Teitelbaum, and in fact, after he took over, first as rabbi and then as rebbe, two different functions, there developed around Alta Feige a group of supporters Uh, who believed themselves to be the true believers in the way of the founding Rebbe, Rabbi Joel. And they became the first group of dissidents within this community that appears to the outside world as absolutely uniform, right? United in its views uh, in every regard. And in fact, what we discovered is that within sort of piercing the veneer of uniformity reveals all sorts of tensions and fractiousness and dissident movements, the first of which took rise around Altafaga, who became, in some sense, if not a political leader, then the symbolic leader of the opposition.
0: And in one of these wonderful ironies, that helped you get the story. (laughs) Yeah,
1: right. Well, so divisions, not that there weren't squabbles while Joel Teitelbaum was alive, but his charismatic authority was so total that the idea of a dissident movement was unimaginable. But then he died. And all hell broke loose, and it's been going on ever since, since August 1979. So initially, it was the division between the second Satmar Rebbe, Moshe Teitelbaum, and the circle that developed around Alta But then Moshe Teitelbaum, the second Satmar Rebbe, decided in 1999, in a decision that still defies rational explanation, to divide the Satmar kingdom, as it were, into two to designate his eldest son, the person who was deemed heir apparent of the whole empire, uh, Rabbi Aaron Teitelbaum, as the chief rabbi of Curious Joel, and his third son, Zalman Leib, as the chief rabbi of Williamsburg, the other major Satmar enclave. And once again, all hell broke loose between followers of those two rabbis that ended up in state courts on occasions too many, too numerous to, to count. And... Not only were there legal battles, there were there were physical battles between the two sides at various points in time. So basically what you have from 1979 until the present is an unresolved succession. Now, that, ironically enough, worked to our benefit because when we would go to the community, we would talk to a follower of this camp, Camp A, and then we would go to seek a meeting with a follower of Camp B and that follower would say, well, whom did you speak to? And I said, oh, well, I spoke to someone from Camp A. At that point, all the doors opened immediately. I was told to sit down and three hours later, you know, we had gotten half the story. So that kind of desire to get the story right between the two sides and actually there are three sides. There's a kind of still the followers of Alta Feige. They developed into their own group. That really aided us in gaining access. In addition to the natural curiosity of people and what the heck are you doing here, we really benefited from that back and forth.
0: At this point, can you help us understand then by recapping or gathering what we've talked about at the table, reiterating what Curious Joel can help us understand about who we are in America? Not just American Jews, because that's an important question too, but who we are as Americans.
2: Well, so the other thing that these internal political divisions inside the community gave rise to was an enormous amount of litigation. So we talked about the case that went up to the Supreme Court, and that was a lawsuit that was initiated by someone outside of the community, challenging the community. But there were dozens of lawsuits that were initiated by one of the factions, one of the political factions inside the community against the other, notwithstanding this supposed prohibition on taking internal disputes to the courts. And so, first of all, those court records in and of themselves were another really important source of information because each side would represent their allegations about what the other side did, and there might be supporting documents. So, first of all, just as a research matter, it was another. But those myriad lawsuits raised really profound questions about, what the values of an American society are right there is this perception I mean, it was very it was perfectly encapsulated in a 60 minute story that ran in the lead up to the Supreme Court case where anchorman Ed Bradley talks about there's this lawsuit and it's coming out of this community and he describes the community in these very sinister tones as a place where you know little boys study from dawn to dusk and you know, being drilled into religious education, they've no secular education and there's traditional division of gender, you know, every everything is controlled by the all powerful Rebbe. And he says, you know, imagine such a community. Not in America, he says. And the lawsuits really asked, are any of are any of these <laughs> practices or institutions actually un-American? Well that requires us to ask, well, what is American, right? And more specifically, I mean, there were, there were two fundamental principles that many people connected to the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, to the First Amendment of the Constitution, which were really fundamental what, to one version of American identity and American values, the liberal version or more specifically, really, a kind of mid-20th century version of American liberalism. What are those two principles? Number one, a belief that separate is inherently unequal, and so sort of a belief in the value of integration. And the other, the belief in the principle of separation between religion and state, which, you know, when, when I came of age, I'm born in 1961, I mean, my understanding is that principle is embodied in the First Amendment of the Constitution in the Establishment Clause we spoke of earlier. Well, actually, those words appear nowhere in the Constitution. What the Establishment Clause says is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The Supreme Court interpreted that prohibition on state support for religion as meaning that there must be a separation between religion and state. But although that principle had been hinted at, That was actually, it wasn't until the midpoint of the 20th century that the Supreme Court said that. And from the moment it did, it is really that that catalyzed the movement we know as the religious right. The religious right insisted there is no such principle in the Constitution. The idea that religion must be removed from the public square and the public schools and that there can be no public funding for religious education, that's completely misguided. So that's a really important factor in the rise of the religious right and the broader conservative religious movement. And it went hand in hand with the retreat from integration. And what we see in all these cases that, you know, they're just internal disputes between the psalmers, they're really testing. They're asking which interpretation of the First Amendment and which interpretation of the equal protection clause is correct.
1: I'll try and summarize as as I see it sort of what we learned from this story. First, to just pick up on what Nomi said, we learned that re- religion has a huge role in American society. We sometimes forget that. We sometimes imagine that we live in a highly secular, anti-religious world. Religion is alive and vibrant in the United States, and it has been you know, since the inception of the American Republic. And not only that, but religion has had a very important role in the public square and an increasingly large role. Two, we learned that interest group politics are a manifestation of the American democratic order. It's not a deviation from it, but it's the way in which democracy is played in this country. And you know, when we think of Kirish Joel playing according to those rules, we think of the community as a kind of outlier. But in fact, they're playing the game that other groups play, whether it be the National Rifle Association or other, another interest group. This is the way the game is played. If you marshal your ability to leverage in ways that can, that can participate in the, in the game, then you can win. And there's nothing illegal or unconstitutional about that. That's the way our game is played. A third thing is this idea of illiberal liberalism, that an illiberal group can use the instruments of liberalism to benefit itself and to assure its own, its own perpetuation. It seems to be, again, a strikingly odd and counterintuitive proposition, but it is amply displayed in this community. And the fourth thing that I would say that really goes back to what Nomi was just talking about is this. The arc of Kirs joel tracks the arc of the rise of really the modern conservative, religious conservative movement. Keiris-Joel takes rise a couple of years before the birth of the moral majority. These two sort of follow each other very, very closely and are agitating for an even greater place for religion in the American public square for the erosion of the boundary between religion and state. And this really reached, I think, a a sort of a, a climax in 2020, both as a result of the COVID pandemic and as a result of the presidential election, where one saw the very fierce articulation of the principle of religious liberty, my right to my religious freedom, even, some might say, trumping the interests of public health of the collective as in the COVID crisis. In a certain sense, 2020 marks sort of either the end or the beginning, the end of that arc that began in the late 70s and maybe the beginning of a new era in which we will not live with that vaunted separation between church and state, which seems so deeply embedded in the American legal and constitutional
2: Mm -hmm. order. But but if that is true and... (laughs) you know, this is such a new phenomenon. In the period of time we were doing our research, we didn't see the use of that discourse of religious liberty, which is really a discourse that comes from conservative Christians. We didn't see the support for Trump. In fact, in the 2016 election, the community was roughly evenly divided between support for Hillary Clinton and support for Donald Trump. So there's a lot we need to know. But if what David just sort of conjectured is the case, that would represent the most ironic example of what we call unwitting assimilation of all. Because as I just suggested, that would really constitute the kind of absorption of the, not just the discourse, but the worldview of Christian, of a Christian-led <laughs> American conservative political movement. So whether, whether the fact that in In the most recent election, over 90% of the community,
1: 99%
2: 99 voted for Trump. The troubling resistance to compliance with COVID regulations that we saw, these are very recent trends. Does that bespeak the ironic absorption of basically a, a, a Christian conservative mindset? I guess only time will tell.
0: When you talk about the future and not knowing, Well, the internet now and the fear of not being able to control those influences and the growth, the exponential growth in the population of that it may be a city on a hill soon.
1: Well, there's a lot there. So yes, this is a community that doubles or more in population every decade. Families typically have eight children. Uh, It's not uncommon to have a family with 12 or 15 children. It's going to continue to grow the community's own estimates are that it'll be about 75,000 by 2035. Other estimates that I've seen suggest it could be, well, close to 150,000 by 2040. I think we're going to see two trends. We're going to see continued growth internally through this astonishingly high birth rate. And we're going to see an increase in the number of exiters, people who leave the community, principally owing to the influence of the internet which sort of cracks things open in ways that are the source of great terror to community leaders this is what keeps them awake at night because you can't constrain the internet right you can't you you can you can sniff out a television in someone's house televisions are not allowed in in the houses of the community uh, you can sort of see someone reading a newspaper but the internet is much more difficult to detect and it clearly is opening up worlds to people in the community. And it's going to lead, I think, larger numbers of people leave. Still, I think, a small minority. But the, those two vectors are going to act in dialectical tension with one another. The increasing threat of the internet and the larger numbers of exiters will lead to a redoubled commitment to grow from within. And so I think you're going to see both of those things develop. And it'll be very interesting to watch. I'll just say a word about sort of the Jewish aspects. To what do we learn about American Judaism and Jewry? We learn that it's far more diverse than we ever thought. And in fact, we should pay attention because the percentage of traditionally observant Haredi Jews will continue to grow as a larger portion of the pie of American Jewry over the next half century. There's just no doubt about that. So this is going to be less of a foreign, alien, and exotic exemption and more mainstream over the next half century. And I think what's going to have to happen is both sides are going to have to learn more about each other. Sort of those outside of the community are going to have to learn what a really thick Jewish culture looks like, what a culture looks like that is premised not on rights but obligation, what that enables in terms of preservation of Jewish values. And I think... The community itself is going to have to learn about what it means to live in a world where not just rights are important, but the larger commonweal, the well-being of American Jewry at large, and the well-being of America at large. It's okay to sort of be a, a shtetl on the hill, unless you've reached a point, as we may well have in the United States, where all need to share a sense of civic vision.
0: All. And civic duty. Nomi Stolzenberg, who holds the Nathan and Lily Chapelle Chair in Law at the University of Southern California Law School, and David Myers, who holds the Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Chair in Jewish History at the University of California, Los Angeles, speaking about their important study, American Shtetl, The Making of Curious Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York, issued in February by Princeton University Press. Dr. Myers is a native of Scranton. For more information, we have some websites for you. The first is the Princeton University Press, press.princeton.edu, press.princeton.edu. David Myers has his own website, davidnmyers.com, and Myers is spelled M-Y-E-R-S, David N myers.com. And to learn about Professor Stolzenberg, gould.usc.edu. And Gould is the name of the law school at the University of Southern California. So gould.usc.edu. Again, the title of the book is American stettle The Making of Curious Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York, issued by Princeton University Press. And Kiryas Joel is spelled K-I-R-Y-A-S and then J-O-E-L. This is the second segment of a two-part conversation, and you can hear part one on the WVIA website, wvia.org under Art Scene.